G'day and welcome to another episode of Death and Donuts. I'm Seb James. There are many paths to the Logos, billions in fact. Most of us are continually searching for meaning and we find it in everything that is true, good and beautiful. You may think everyone's journey is pretty much the same, but if you listen carefully to these podcasts, you will learn something new with each personal testimony. So in this episode, you're going to hear from Mike Greenwell. Mike was raised on the North Shore of Sydney. He had wonderful loving parents and siblings and enjoyed his childhood. He was brought up with no faith, but was sent to a private school, which had a Christian ethos. However, even after finishing school, he thought Jesus Christ was actually a cartoon character, a fairy tale. In his teens, he began to drink a little bit of alcohol, and by the time he was 18, he was getting drunk quite often. Over the coming years, he formed a full-blown addiction to the bottle, and he also struggled with other vices. Even after he had one or two kids with his lovely wife, Marie, he would still come home drunk many nights and even wet the bed. He was so enslaved by addiction that he lost many jobs. He couldn't even pay the electricity bills, and his marriage, of course, was on the rocks for a, for a period. The miracles do happen when we surrender our lives. And obviously, if you listen to the podcast, you'll get to understand what that means a little bit better. Today, Mike is brimming with joy. He has been incredibly blessed with many children and even more grandchildren. And can I just give a quick shout out to his wife, Marie? You are incredible. Without you, there is no way Mike would be here to tell his story. You are an absolute gem and a great example of what it means to be faithful through good and bad. May you be blessed forever, Marie. And apologies for the audio. Charlie, the family dog, decided to join us during the interview. I think he might have a little bit of asthma or sleep apnea, but I'm hoping you find his breathing somewhat therapeutic. Enjoy the podcast. I, uh, I came from a family of four, four children, four siblings, uh, myself included in one of those. Uh, I had a twin brother, an elder brother, and a younger sister, and my mum and dad. Dad was a surgeon, and so really we wanted for nothing. I didn't have any problems as we went through in our earlier lives. I mean, there was, uh, we, we lived in a house, and uh, you know, we, we went to a very good school. Um, they were loving parents, they adored us, and uh, they weren't Catholic. In fact, uh, at, at that stage, they, they didn't really have any faith. They didn't, certainly didn't have a denomination to look at. Uh, we called ourselves Congregationalists. On my baptismal certificate, I was Congregationalist. Um, later on in life, Mum and Dad became Presbyterian. I went to a Church of England school and married a Catholic, so I was uh, very confused initially. But um, we grew up. Uh, John and I, my twin brother and myself, were very competitive uh, because we were twins. Uh, we lived in the same room. We studied together everything we did. And even today, um, we would ring each other two to, twice a day and uh, we're very, very close as twins, and um, that's the way it is, and that's the way we like it, it's great. Yeah. Um, we don't live in each other's pockets, he lives up in the bush and I live here. He's since become a Catholic as well, so have I, oh. and um, he lives in a community, a Catholic community, in a little place called Karkor outside of Orange, and uh, loves it, and they have uh, prayers church every day, and uh, he's, he's going, going very well. So, you know, despite the fact that we weren't brought up as, as Christians initially, um, we, it was through an adversity in my life that I became a Catholic. 
um, and that was after I got married. But uh, in our earlier days, you know, there was nothing. We played sport. We went to, as I said, a good, a very good school. We got university passes to go to university. Um, I never went to university. I decided I wanted to do real estate, and of course, I went that long. That I was a people's person. I felt, and, mm. or geology was my bent. And I did get into the school of mining in Ballarat, and I was going to go there because I wanted to do geology. But that meant I had to leave my twin brother. It meant I had to leave my parents and things, and I wasn't prepared to at that age. So. I did real estate and at 21 I had my first real estate agency and I went from there. Wow. And um, so just quickly, um, you you had a pretty good childhood. Very and, good childhood. And, 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 uh, and into high school you, you had no real issues um, with your parents or with your siblings and everything was good. Absolutely. There was none, none whatsoever that I can think of that it was, was a disturbance in our lives. Um, uh, you know, it was just a very happy, normal we lived in St Ives in a Sydney suburb and uh, it was great. But it wasn't until, you know, my late, my, well, mid-teens, late teens that I started to get myself into a lot of trouble. Okay. Um, and that was through drinking. Right. Because uh, mum and dad used to drink and I remember I used to go to their cupboard and I used to have a look in the cupboard and there was, some, might have been some sherry or port in those days and we had a bit and my elder brother was drinking it because he was doing his leaving certificate at the time. And um, mum was totally unaware of the dangers of alcoholism or drinking. And uh, David used to have this because it told, she, he told uh, mum that it made him sleep. So in fact, mum would go and buy bottles of port or so David could have a couple of ports at the end of his study while he's at school. I mean, it was, we were blind. Mum and dad were blind to the fact. And uh, dad was a gastro surgeon, so he saw plenty of sick livers, which were caused through, you know, a lot of them through alcohol. Uh, my elder brother eventually became a judge. He also is an alcoholic, and uh, um, but he's since sober. Um, my twin brother is now sober. He also uh, had a problem, and I had a problem. My grandfather was uh, was well, we think he was an alcoholic. He died. He was a, a light horseman in the in the wars and was lanced. Uh, but Mum's brother was a, a chronic alcoholic and lived as a skid row on the banks of the Brisbane River. So I believe it's hereditary. The World Health Organisation doesn't. And at our early life, we certainly didn't either. Didn't know anything about it. So we just went merrily on. And uh, when I got to the, you know, 16, 17, we'd have a few drinks at parties. And they did for me what I wouldn't and couldn't do for myself. And that was to dance with the girls and crack jokes and, and uh, make a bit of a goose of myself, which uh, they, they all laughed at. And I thought was pretty good and gave me a bit of Dutch courage. Not that I needed any, because I was a fairly gregarious personality, we both were, um, but it, 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 it gave me a bit more. Mm. And um, then I found, you know, later on that the year in our final two years of school, I used to have to drink before I went out to give me that Dutch courage, not at the party, but uh, before. And in fact, when I went golfing, I'd take drink in my uh, alcohol in my buggy. And I might not drink it, but I just felt secure, the fact that I'd had this hit there. And Nothing seemed to faze me. I didn't think that was wrong. There was anything wrong with that. That's what we did in those days. We drank and drove. We were stupid, but uh, that's what we did. Mm. And eventually I got, at an early age, got a, a license to practice for my business, which was real estate, and I moved to a country town. I was 21, 22, I think, 20, somewhere around there. And uh, I was uh, living in a little flat by myself and um, working I had five jobs, I was very uh, an industrious person, 
And uh, the second job I had apart from a real estate business was working five nights a week in an RSL club. And I look back in hindsight and realise that that was purely an excuse to drink. And uh, so I did that and I was working mowing lawns. I had a contract mowing lawns and I had a rent run. Um, I was working building train bodies two afternoons a week so because it was a bit quiet sometimes in country towns so I was able to do that. So I was running myself a bit ragged um, and so much so that I started getting a bit down. So I realised that, you know, maybe the reason I'm the way I am is because I'm depressed is because I'm not married, I'm lonely living in this country town. So I eventually was to, uh, and I had girlfriends over these, these periods and things, but I was going with a girl who I was very fond of. She was a Catholic, a good Catholic, but in fact I thought she was too good for me because I was a bit of a rebel. I, you know, was used to play up a bit and go and get drunk and... Um, but eventually I, I thought, well, that's what I'll do. If I get married, I'll be okay, you know. She'll calm me down. So we did. Uh, no, we didn't, sorry. We got engaged. I asked her to marry me, and she did. And just before we were to get married, I pulled the pin on the marriage because I thought that she was too good for me. I didn't want to bring her into my world because uh, things were, were pretty tough. Sorry, so you were, or you were still living in this country town or you decided to move? To, to closer to where this girl no, no, I was living I was living in the country town and she was in Sydney oh okay so you were travelling to back and forth yep, to, yep. To, and then, to go on dates and then we broke off okay. and then I went out with a girl who was a lot older than myself and in fact had children she was 10 years older than myself and, and she started to she wanted to marry me and that's when I got a bit scared because I didn't particularly want to get married at that stage to her, I still had the thoughts of this original girl Marie in my mind and I was desperate to to uh, to see her again. But her father apparently had told her that she couldn't speak to me again because I'd just you know, when we when we when I pulled the pin on the engagement, I did it very stupidly and just walked away from the situation, said, I'm we're not getting married, I'm sorry, to, but that's it, you know. And uh, so I was a little bit gutless in that sense. So one day I decided that I'm going to ring her, and I did. And uh, I said, Marie, it's Michael. And she said, yes. And I said, I'd like to come and see you if I can. She said, well, you'll have to speak to my father. And I gulped and uh, thought it could, he was a, used to be a first grade rugby league blue bag. And uh, he was a big man and a tough man. And uh, so I thought, well, I've got to do that. So I rang Ray, the father, and uh, he had a go at me. And then eventually he said, yes, having said that, you can. So I immediately rang her back and I said, I've spoken to your father and he said, yes, I can come and see you. And she said, oh, okay, well, when? And she was in Sydney. I said, now? And she said, now? And I said, I'm in Mittagong. I'll drive straight there. So I did. And when she came out from work, I was there to meet her and I had some cheese and a bottle of wine and a rug. And we sat, she worked at Milson's Point and we walked down underneath the Harbour Bridge and we sat and we chatted and within six weeks we were married. Wow. So I believe that was, well, it was certainly a blessing as far as I was concerned. Because she was, was still um, getting drunk regularly. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was hopeless. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was worse than I'd ever been at that stage of my life. Um, but she hadn't seen me for, for some time and so she didn't know that I was, I was as bad as I was. And we got married and um, she was going with a fellow at the time too and he wanted to marry her. So she went home to her mother and she said, um, Mum, I'm in trouble. Michael's back on the scene and he's asked me to marry her. Marry me. And uh, her mother said something like, 
well, who had mother had cancer and was dying of cancer, and she said, "Darling," she said, um, "I've walked the earth for you. You wait to see what happens when I get to heaven." She said, "I'd marry Michael," so she did. She married me, and um, her mother was a good Catholic. Marie was a good Catholic, and um, that's what I found difficult. You know, uh, to be if I married her, I would probably have to become a Catholic. And I wasn't prepared to go there. I could see the benefits, but it was hard to be a Catholic, especially when I was never one. And when we played sport at school, we played Joey's and Riverview, and they were Catholics, and it was a war, you know, and that's the way we looked upon Catholics. So it wasn't going to be an easy thing, but we got married, we moved down to this country town to my business, and uh, things didn't change. Things, in fact, got worse. I was staying out at night working in the clubs. There was wet beds, there was fights, there was... uh, it was a horrible time and probably the worst thing that happened, I think she got as sick if not sicker than me because one way of defending myself, how I defended myself, was to drag those who you love down, bring them down to your level and this is what drug addicts do. They try and get you hooked on the drug and bring them you down to their level so that they feel better. So one way I could feel better was to bring her down to my level. For instance, I would wake in the morning and I'd say, Marie, if I got that shirt there, oh no, sorry, sorry, I haven't, it's, it hasn't been ironed. What do you mean it hasn't been ironed? I've got to go to work today and you haven't ironed my shirt? You know, these are, so it belittles her. And so I put her down and these, that made me feel better because I was back on top. But that's not a life for her. And uh, she eventually, she did speak to solicitors about what can she do and things and the marriage wasn't going very well. We moved, I had my licence taken away from me by the Council of Auctioneers and Agents because I wasn't, you know, practising very well. I wasn't surviving in real estate. I, I was making a dollar, but I wasn't mentally, physically. The books were a mess. Mm-hmm. So they, they took suspended my licence for a while, for two years, and I moved back to Sydney and moved into Lane Cove with my father-in-law and my wife. And it was there one day that I decided... It was an amazing thing. My elder brother, I rang him. I was very sick this particular day. I had the start of peripheral neuritis, the start of Korsakoff's disease, uh, which is a mental illness. You know, you lose your short-term memory and you get tingles in the end of your fingers and uh, toes and stuff. Um, And I was very, very um, emotional, very depressed, and I didn't have a job, and I had no likelihood of getting a job. I I was uninsurable, and... uh, I um, decided that day that I was going to ring my elder brother, who was sober at the time, and ask him if he could possibly help me in some way. And that night he took me to a meeting, an AA meeting, and I'll never forget that meeting because at that meeting I sat, I'll never forget it, and this, and this is uh, 40, 43 years ago, I sat in the third row back from the front, the second seat in, next to my brother, and all of a sudden the chairperson asked, would I like to speak? Well, I didn't know what to say. This is my first meeting. Anyway, I got up and I walked out the front and I heard that they had, the people that had spoke had said, oh, my name's uh, Fred. And I, so I said, my name's Michael. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I burst into tears and I said, and I think I'm happy to be here. And I sat down. And with that, a woman came walking from the back of the room, came up and sat on the other side of me and took me by the hand and looked at me. And she just said, Mike, you keep coming back, mate. You just keep coming back. And for that reason, for the next two years, that's exactly what I did. That's all I did. There is a thing in Alcoholics Anonymous which says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I changed nothing. All I did was just sit in those meetings every Wednesday night with Bev next to me. Bev was, I believe, was my guardian angel. Um, she didn't look like an angel, but poor Bev had fallen out of a train, drunk uh, between the carriage and the, uh, and the platform. The face was a mess. She had a speech impediment because of it. No hair on her head because it had been burnt off in a bed fire when she was smoking in bed, drunk. But she was a, an angel to me, and, uh, and I just loved her, and, I, and she just talked to me all the time. And for two years, that's all I did. I might as well have been drinking because I was what they call a dry drunk. I, uh, I had done nothing about the program, you know, and the program talks, and the most important thing in the program, which I speak about now if I ever go, when I go, is came to believe in a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. And uh, I didn't know what this was. And eventually after two years, I said to Bev, Bev, can you help me? I need to know, uh, I'm not happy. I just wanna love my wife, I wanna love my kids. I wanna be happy, I'm not, I'm miserable. How do I do it, how can I be happy? And she said, well Mike, she said, go and find someone who you really look up to, you really respect, you admire, you like to hear them, you, you think what they're saying or you know what they're saying. Is, is, is truth and uh, there was a man who was a guy Steve and he lived up in Gordon Steve had tats all over him and tats up his arms and things he chopped off a finger one night in hospital so that he could get more morphine tough and rough he was an ex-boxer an ex-pug broken nose which was spread across his face and when he spoke he spoke about the rough times well I lived in King's Cross at the age of 18 I left and I worked, went into King's Cross and they're the people I drank with, they're the people I played with, and it was, they're the people I loved. And this man was one of these rough and tough guys. And I went to Steve and I said, can I talk to you? And he said, of course. He said, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, well, nothing. He said, well, I'm going fishing up north, about 300k, southwest rocks, do you want to come with me? And I said, I'd love to. So I went and asked Marie if that was okay, and she said, yes, please. And uh, so I met him on the Friday afternoon at his place and there were two other men there that night, that afternoon. One young fella, he was 18 years of age. I was 27 years of age at this stage. Um, he was a surfer from the northern beaches. His name was Spence, long blonde hair as he did in those days. The other guy had just been released from Silverwater Prison on a manslaughter charge. He shot a man through a, a screen door. He was coming into his pre premises and he killed him. But he was drunk and... Uh, He'd been released and uh, he wanted to talk to Steve too. So the four of us all went up to Southwest Rocks fishing. And on the second night we were out there on the beach and the waves were rolling in and the moon was up there. It was just a beautiful balmy night. And I said, Steve, can, I, can we talk, mate? Can we talk? And he said, sure, sure, let's talk. So I asked him how he got to where he was in his life because he was a very spiritual man and he spoke about spirituality to him was being wanted, needed and loved. And that's what any one of us ever want, to be wanted, needed and loved. And he said, I am today. But I wasn't always wanted, needed and loved. And I didn't feel as though I was wanted, needed or loved by anybody, least of all me. And unless you can love yourself, you can't love anyone else. And I don't mean that in a conceited way. I mean, happy with what you're doing, happy with the way you're living, you know. Be proud so that the Lord can look at you and say, you know, you're a good citizen. Look forward to meeting you up here. Anyway, I... We're on the beach and he said, well, Mike, he said, it came to me in a prayer. And I went, oh, no, a prayer. What's That's all I hear in these things, prayer, prayer, prayer. And this is where I say I'd given, I'd changed nothing. 
You know, I'd given no, I had given nothing a chance. And he talked about this prayer and he said, the prayer was that our hearts are made for thee, O Lord, and restless are they until they find their peace in thee. And Steve looked at me and he said, Mike, you'll be as restless as you want to be till the day you die, unless you hand your will and your life over to the care of God as you don't understand. And I said, you're right, I don't understand. He said, well, he said, faith without action's dead. He said, unless you act and try and gain some faith, he said, you're going to be dead. You're going to leave it all behind. You're going to lose what you've been given. He said, there's only one thing you can do. Get out on the highway right now, right now on the highway, hitchhike back to Sydney and get down on your knees with your wife and ask this God to come into your life. Hand it over. You can't do it on your own, Mike, he said. This is far bigger than you or I. You know, we, we, we need that third person in a marriage. We need the th second person next to us all our lives. Yes, by all means, call on him in hard times. But when good times, when you're going to the beach, take him with you. You don't leave him at home. Take him with you to the beach. You know, and this is the way this rough and gruff ex-pug, ex-boxer talked to me. And I said, but Steve, you mean get out on the road now? It's midnight. He said, that's right, mate. I said, what about my kit bag and my rod? I'll take that back. You get out on the road right now. I said, you're kidding. Faith without action's dead, Mike. Get out on the road right now. So I did. I should have waited till the next morning and gone with them because I was two days getting home. They got back the next day. <laughs> so I missed out. But it was, a, it was a discipline for me. When I got back to Sydney in a couple of I rang Marie from Warunga. She said, where are you? And I told her where I was. She came and picked me up and we went home. And on the way home, she said, Mike, what did he say? And I said, he told me to pray, get down on my knees and pray and ask this God to help me. And she said, thank God. I mean, Marie was a church girl. She went to Mass every Sunday. She was, you know, a beautiful, beautiful person. Far too good for me, so I thought. And I was, and I was probably right, she was too good. But I was prepared to go to any lengths to get it now. I was desperate because I didn't have a job, I didn't have anything. So I then started walking the North Shore looking for jobs as real estate agents I was totally honest with them I told them that when they said well why have you got a license I said well I do but it's been why has it been suspended and I tell them and one man at Castle Crag said to me because of your honesty I'm going to give you a job well I worked with him at Castle Crag I became their top salesman and after a year and a half I left there and opened my own business again in Roseville and I took on a partner again who was 10 years older than me a bloke lovely bloke and we did very very well and uh, we were successful. And I used to go to AA meetings every night of my life from then on. And uh, I've been praying every day ever since then. And, you know, I can see now the benefit. And when they talk about hand your will in your life over and you come to believe in a power greater than yourself, a personal power, that one being Jesus Christ, your life changes. I didn't think that was possible. For two years I sat around and said, you're all mugs. You know, and I look at it now and... Uh, the life I live today is just the most beautiful life. I don't have a lot of money, you know, I've got one house, I don't have investments around the place, but I'm the richest man in the world. I've got this beautiful wife still with me today after 47 years. I've got five beautiful kids, I've got 14 magnificent grandchildren, and I've got the world at my feet and I've got my health, you know. Um, and here I am sitting here with, with Seb, you know. <laughs> Telling this life, and it becomes a bit emotional. Even now, when I think about it, you know, it's I've been given this gift, the gift of sobriety, and it only came from one person, and that one was God. But there was a lot of people along the road that became His intercessor and sort of popped into my life to help me go. You know, yeah. I remember I was asked one time I was giving a talk to 
some students, uh, what they call um, elite students, I think it was, and I was asked by a Liberal politician to come and talk. So they heard that I talk about these things and asked me to come and talk. And uh, I went and saw him and he said, Mike, I think you're too old, to be honest, when I was giving him the, the, the spiel. And I said, well, look, the reason, Alan, that I'm, I speak from when I had my first drink at 13 till I had my last drink at 27, that's what I'm talking about, not my age now. He said, fair enough, that's okay, except that, that's good. He said, but the other thing, he said, I don't want you to talk too much about God and Christ, you know, and religion. I said, well, I'm sorry, you were right the first time, Alan, I'm out of here. How can I deny the fact, you know, that I got to where I am because of my faith in, 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 in a power greater than myself, or I called Jesus Christ, and not talk about him, tell, tell other people how to get there. And he said, oh, well, well, look, maybe a little bit. This man was a Catholic. Maybe a little bit you can talk about it. So I got up and I told, as I would normally, and, and the same amount of, um, you know, faith in my talk, and I love to talk about faith. A lot of people talk, give drunkologues, but I think that that's good. You need a drunkologue, but not all drunkologues. You've got to have the faith side of the program as well. And so that's what I spend most of my time on. Anyway, I gave it in front of a... A large crowd of young people, uh, students, at the King's School in the big auditorium and we went out onto the main oval for lunch afterwards. And this politician, Alan, came up to me afterwards and he said, Mike, I have an apology to make. And I said, no, no, you don't. What, what's that? He said, look, I told you not to bring up that faith thing. He said, that was the best thing you'd said in that speech all day. It was beautiful. And those kids need what you said. And that made me totally vindified, vindicated and, you know... It is what we need. We can't do this on our own. We cannot do live a life we, like we do today without our Lord sitting on our shoulder. And we ask him for help and assistance and guidance and uh, to take us through life. And every time we trip up, we go in there to the confessional and we say to our fathers there, you know, we ask our Lord to forgive us and uh, we get that. And this is how we keep going. You know, so many people can't and the, the youth suicide thinks that I can see why. You know, they run out of hope. There's no hope. They've got no one to talk to or anything else. And life is tough. And uh, so I today, you know, live a beautiful life. And I'll just very quickly, did you want to ask, say something? Yeah, yeah, no, you, you keep on going. Well, I'll, 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 one of the things that, that has given me so much uh, comfort in my life today is I believe that, you know, when I die and I, I hopefully get up there to see our Lord, he's going to say to me, Oh, g'day, Mike. He's not going to say, how many years have you had sober? 45. That's fantastic. Go through that door over there. No, he's not going to say that. He's going to say, what did you do with the sobriety that I gave you when you're on earth? And if I've done nothing with it, I'm useless. I'm a cur, as John, who was it said, but to John Kerr. Um, you know, I'm useless. So I have to give away what I've been given to get it back. It's in the giving that you receive. And so I talk to anybody, day or night, you know, um, any time of the day, any time of the night, uh, to try and help them. I love to see people getting up and getting... And um, I was up at... I had my little grandchild, he was three at the time, and we went... He was, I was feeling sick because I've got many ears disease, and I thought, well, I'll take him to Koala Park, just the two of us. Took him up to Koala Park, we were walking through the Koala Park, and uh, we had a picture taken with the with the uh, wombat sitting on our laps and we went into the kangaroo enclosure and he grabbed hold of the kangaroo's tail and it took off with him. And then we had a picture taken with a fellow shearing a sheep and we we're walking back out of the park and 
I was walking in front of him and I heard this little voice from behind say, Poppy, Poppy, Poppy. I turned around and said, yes, mate, come on, catch up, come up, come up to Pop. Yeah, mate, what do you want, what do you want? And he looked up at me with his big eyes and he said, Poppy, I love you. Am I rich? Is that richness? That's what life's all about. You know, umpteen years ago, no one loved me. No one wanted me. Not even least of all me. I hated me. I would rise in the morning, look at myself in the mirror and smash myself in the face. I hated me. I got myself into all sorts of trouble and I'm not going to go into all the trouble bits. But have a little three-year-old boy tell me that he loves me. That's what it's all about. And I've now got 14 of those little children that love me. I've got all my beautiful children that love me and I've got people all around me and I mix in those circles now. I work with people who I love and they love me and uh, that's why I do it. Um, so I awesome. am rich. I am rich, mate. Thank you so much, Mike. I, you know, again, I love when people can just speak from the heart and tell, tell, tell their story and you didn't need any prompting, which means, you know, it obviously it stayed with you forever and it will um you know to see the love of god and and how he's blessed you so when you talk because you do talk to young people still right i mean you have in the past gone to prisons and places like that have you been able to connect your story to them have you found something resonates with them obviously prayer but that's a really tricky tricky thing to get guys to understand what that is as you went through sure and and to be able to surrender themselves i personally had that I've, I've struggled with that you know surrendering my life over to a to god um how do you explain that to to young men well you're 100 percent right uh there's i don't notice the grog so much these days and i do talk to young people and university students school students um prisons and i want to get back into that a lot more as soon as i retire that's what i'd rather i'd, I'd, I'd like to do because they definitely need assistance mm -hmm. same as any of us but I find that, you know, when I've given a talk, I always say at the end of the talk, if there's anyone here that needs to chat later, by all means, come up and talk. And if you don't want to do that, you ring me later on and we'll get together in a coffee shop. Or if you want to go to a pub, I'm happy to do that too, you know. And it's amazing the number of boys that do. When I was, I gave talks down at the uh, Kangaroo Valley for a school there once and uh, they couldn't escape down there. And I used to have a line of boys and I'd finished at 10 o'clock at night. And I'd be there till sort of midnight, standing in the cold talking to each of these kids, you know, individually. And that was fantastic. And I realised, and I said to the headmaster of the school, these boys need to talk, you know. They don't talk to, to other people. They, they, but they availed themselves to me because I was honest to them, they were honest to me. And I think if you set up a rapport and pour out your heart and say to people, now look, what I'm telling you, it's my story and it's not... It's not easy for me to tell, and I don't expect you to go out there and start telling everybody about my story. It's our story between us two. But if you need a help, you come and talk to me too, and they do. The majority of them have problems, as you said, with pornography and drugs. Pornography has been a huge one. My wife and I gave, give talks to um, young people getting married. When they first get married, the, the, the Catholic uh, faith has a, uh, has a scheme where they, they go in and sit and spend a weekend doing a uh, preparation for marriage course. And they were invaluable and we used to do, talk to these kids then and I'd love to do that again. Um, and invariably they would come up. A man came up to me afterwards, a young man, and his wife had gone to the bathroom after the talk and he said, I've got a problem too. And I looked at him and I said, it's not grog. And he said, no. I said, it's pornography, isn't it? And he said, yes. You can tell, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And he said, yeah, it's just, and I said, mate, 
you're going to have to get rid of that. You're going to have to put it down. You've got to put it on the program. You've got to hand it over to our Lord, you know. Give it to him. He'll get rid of it and talk to you. I said, that's, it's like an indelible pencil. It'll stay on your mind for the rest of time. It is highly addictive and you will never forget those images unless you, you know, hand it over to our Lord and, and ask for forgiveness. I said, what you're doing to your beautiful little fiancé in there is basically prostituting and looking at that rubbish, you know, and it's destroying marriages and things time after time and, and uh, families and like drugs and like grog, you know, you've got to get rid of it. And I can't talk to tell the boys enough, you know, because that's a, become a huge thing. And particularly with the advent of the, you know, the, the, the computers and the um, uh, Facebooks and Instagrams and, and this type of stuff, it's just uh, shocking. Mm. And um, and how free it is to get. I mean, I turn on my phone every now and again, and, and something pops up on my phone. Mm. You know, I can't believe it, yeah. but it happens. Yeah. So then I say, well, look, let's go and talk, and I'll we'll go to a coffee lounge. I had a young girl who was 21 ring me the other day. She heard me talk months, ages and ages ago, and went and had a coffee coffee with her. And her two brothers came. That's right. She was a very, you know, sick girl, an alcoholic. This girl, and. To, to watch her grow in her faith and um, in her sobriety has just been the most rewarding thing, you know. And it's nothing I do. I mean, I might be a little bit of an instrument there. Mm. They, they do it, but they do it through our Lord, you know, mm. through through faith, through coming to believe yeah. and through handing over, mm. you know. And uh, I'm just so happy that, yes, I did have the parents I had. They struggled, and looking back in hindsight, I could see that they struggled. They didn't have a faith originally, and Dad was desperate to get a faith. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tell the yeah, story yeah, about uh, this. This is my Dad uh, was similar to me in that he he had nothing, you know. I, as like me, I had no faith, despite the fact that I went to Church of England school for what ten years or something, and went to chapel three times a week. I left that school thinking, uh, believing that Christ was really just a, a, a cartoon sort of character. It was a fi figure of speech. It wasn't real. He wasn't real. And when I joined the Catholic faith and I started going to Mass and got, you know, in with these people, I realised this man was a true human being that walked the earth 2,000 years ago. It became a total revelation. I can honestly say I did not know that he was a real person. And that's pretty disgusting, having gone to that school for all those years, going to chapel three times a week, and if we didn't, we got drills and got hit and smacked and two drills, you get a Saturday morning detention, you know, it was... But, that, you know, I, I couldn't accept it. Anyway... Dad, we were driving to school one day with my two brothers and Dad, and Dad was a doctor, as I mentioned, pulled up at a, a hospital to run in to see a patient he'd operated on the week before. Dad came out and he was in tears. And we'd never seen Dad cry before. He was a fairly strong man, a fairly reserved sort of a character. And we all said, Dad, Dad, what's the matter? And he said, no, forget it, come on, just sit back. And we said, no, Dad, what's the, what is your problem? And Dad said, well, he said, I've just seen something quite extraordinary. He said, in all the time I've been practicing medicine, he said, this man had cancer. And when I went in to see this man, he was sitting up in bed reading his Sydney Morning Herald. He put it down, he looked at me and he said, good morning, doctor. He said, look, I know that I've got cancer. I feel as though I've got cancer. In fact, I know. And I want you to tell me how long, if you wouldn't mind, have I got to go? How long in your mind do you think I've got to go? And in those days, it was between, you know, medical staff and and the doctor, he didn't discuss things with, with uh, patients in those days, and this is many years ago now. But this man, Dad, felt was so honest and so direct and so, you know, he, he felt as though he should tell him. 
And he said, well, and I'll, I'll remember his name, Mr. Richards. He said, Mr. Richards, we don't know, but we think possibly three months, possibly a little less. With that, Mr. Richards picked up his paper, thanked Dad very, very much, and, uh, you know, started looking at his paper again with a smile on his face. And Dad kept looking at him and said, excuse me, Mr. Richards. He said, basically, I've just given you a death sentence, but you're very accepting of it. Why are you so happy? Most people sort of burst into tears and say, why, why me? If there's a God, please help me, you know? It's not too late to ask for help, but I wish they'd had the ask for help some years before. It would have been made things a lot easier. But this man just accepted everything Dad said and thanked him very much. He said, why are you so accepting? And he said, well, Doctor, he said, I know exactly where I'm going, exactly where I'm going, but I need, now that you've given me a timeline to work on it, I'm going up to meet our, meet our maker, my maker, and I'm, I'm very happy about that, but now I've got time to prepare myself to go and see our maker and meet our maker. So I thank you kindly. And with that, Dad burst to tears. He couldn't grasp that. You know, how could a man have so much faith and, and belief in a power greater than himself that's going to accept him into, his, into heaven and he's going to be happy, you know? So Dad, with that, came to the car and it was then Dad's bent to find some sort of faith, some happiness. And it was at the time of Billy Graham crusade, Billy Graham came to Sydney and uh, Dad and Mum went to the Billy Graham crusades and Dad with that became very emotional and, and went down and um, offered his life to Christ. And he, he kept that for the rest of his days. He became an elder of the Presbyterian Church, was a very faith-filled man, you know, was a very good friend of the minister of the church there. and. Uh, that was obvious at his funeral, the way they spoke about Dad, his, his friends in the church spoke about him and um, he was a Bible reading Christian and um, was very sad because just two weeks before Dad died we were at a conference from our father um, in Sydney, um, that's the Opus Day father in Sydney and Dad was in a wheelchair at the time and he was, he'd had a stroke, bit of a stroke and we were sitting in the front row and uh, before we went there, we had dinner at a Chinese restaurant and, and my, my sister, Anna, posed the question to my father, Pop, what was it that you liked most in life? You know, what were a few things you really loved in your life? And he'd mentioned a few things. And she said, and what were the things, did you have any really bad things that you regret doing or not doing? And Dad said, yes, too. And, uh, and he said, what was, she said, what was that? And Dad said that I didn't spend more time with my boys as I should have, my family, my boys, particularly the boys, because boys are boys and they need to run and kick footballs and things. And he didn't spend much time with us at all like that because he was too busy operating. He was senior honorees at two hospitals and did a lot of public work. And so that was weekends and things. And the second thing was, he said that he didn't come to, to meet our Lord earlier in his life. It would have been so much better life had he have come to meet our Lord in his teens and through his early married life and things. But fortunately he met our Lord later in life and two weeks after that conversation Dad died. So we knew that he'd been taken up, he was there, he was ready and uh, it was a beautiful situation. Awesome. And so I made a vow then and there at that time that, because Dad didn't fulfil that first, that second um, regret and that was spending time with us. So I made a, a, a pact with myself then that I was going to spend my life with my kids, and I do. Um, we see them every week pretty well, and uh, I coached football for many, many years, and um, basketball, and with the girls too, and it was, I mean, it, it, it shows, you know, they ring us, we've got an app, the Greenwell app, and 
we speak on it every night and we laugh and we joke and we've got a beautiful family life that's great so i'm blessed one question i have for you mike um is the you were struggling with your alcoholism and your getting drunk every night or every so often when you met your beautiful wife marie did it now that you in hindsight now that you see other men like struggling with something perhaps pornography what do you advise like especially the girls like should you give a guy a chance if he's carrying some sort of addiction or some habit and maybe it's you would you would say yes because they might have a bad habit but they really want to break it what would you say in, in to, to girls in particular in those situations well, well if one of those the spouse of a um of an, a, an alcoholic or a drug addict came to me the first thing is that she don't take his grog away and run away because that's only going to antagonise him. Mm. Um, she's got to get well. It's her life, she's got to get well. So she's got to do something for herself. So she might have to go to Al-Anon or go to the church herself and speak to a priest and do the right things, you know. Mm. Um, if, you, if you're not, you know, a Christian or a good Christian, Al-Anon's a very good place because you will become a good Christian, you know. If you find through, you know, this power grade in itself becomes your Lord, um, our Lord. Uh, you can't help but get well. There are certain promises, and one of the promises is that you, you're going to be okay. Through that, um, then it's his problem. You're doing what you can, it's his problem. And he has to face the consequences. See, I'd come home and I would make every excuse, I would blame her for everything. Why aren't the lights on tonight, uh, Marie? Why aren't the lights on? And she would simply say to me, well, because you haven't paid the bill. And I started thinking about that. I had no excuse. I couldn't blame her for that. That's right. That was my job to pay the bill. When it wasn't paid, I had no one else to, 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 to jump at. And these things, as she calmly said, she didn't get upset. and get a, That was a good excuse if she got upset to blow the roof. But she would say it calmly and I would think, well, that's right. And eventually these things started coming over me and I started thinking, gosh. you know. So I would say to them, you go and get yourself right. Mm. Um, Marriage is for keeps. And my wife, I said to my wife, I said, well, if you don't like it, you just leave. Leave me. Go. And she said, Michael, we got married for keeps. We're going to beat this. I love you. And I love you when you're sober. I love you when, you, when you're not sober. But I can't live with you when you're not sober. You know, I feel sorry for you. And uh, she said, but I'm not walking away from a marriage. I promised Christ that I would be married for better, for worse. And that's what she did. And thank God she did. I thank God. I don't normally say thank God, but I do in this case. I thank our Lord that she, that He gave her the strength to say that. He kept her with me because I would be, and I know, and I've said several times, I would be dead today if I didn't have her next to me. Wow. And not that I would have killed myself, but I would have drunk myself to death, like my grandfather, like my uncle. Mm-hmm. And so you know. Um, I had a man ring, come, uh, well, I was, a priest was talking to this man and he said to go and see me. And the priest rang me and said they might get a call from this man. And I did. I said, well, he's got to ring me. I'm not going to ring him. He's got to ring me because I've, in the past I have rung someone and said, I believe you've got a drinking problem. And they've given me a belt. You know? <laughs> they don't like to be told they're drunk. So I said, no, they're going to ring me and, and accept the fact that they've got a problem. And they've got to admit that they've got a problem first up. This man did. And I said, well, let's meet. And I waited, and we were meeting at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or something. I waited there in this place for 6 to 6.30. And he didn't, he didn't ring, he didn't do anything, so I got home. 
And I rang him the next day and I said, what would happen? He said, I got tied up. And I said, well, a phone call would have been nice. Anyway, I then saw him in Mass uh, four weeks later and I spoke to the priest and said that he didn't turn up. And Now, if these if people want to get well, they've got to want to do it themselves. You, can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. If that man or that woman want to get well, they've got to admit that, that, that they're powerless over this problem, be it pornography, be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it overspending, be it overeating, all these things, um, and, 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 and do something about it. Because if they don't, they won't get well. You know, They're not changing anything. Mm. And uh, so I, I saw this man at Mass, and I went up to him and I fronted him and I said, uh, my name's Michael, we hadn't met at this stage. And he said, oh, you're Michael, you know, yeah, 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 okay. And I was able to chat, very, very big smile on my face. I was very happy to see him, and I genuinely was. Look, you know, let's get together and we'll have a chat. We'll meet down at the coffee shop or wherever. Never heard from him since. So that's his problem, and I don't know what's happening there, mm. and I'm not going to go there. Mm. Because if he wants to get well, he knows, he knows, um, and we'll just have to, to wait. Yeah. But I've got lots and lots of friends who have, have, have got sober, I've got lots and lots of friends that haven't and are dead today because they haven't put their hand out and haven't hung around long enough. You know? yeah. It was just a very quick one. I used to go down to the Talbot on a Sunday morning and feed the men and take water, uh, things out because if they come into the Talbot on a Saturday night and they're drunk, they're not allowed in and they all sleep out on the street. And I used to go down onto the street on a Sunday morning and get them coffee, go and get them coffee, come out with some bread and toast and things. And there was a man there called Richard and uh, I used to feed Richard and Richard, I said to him one day, I said, Rich, what were you before you got yourself into, what were you doing before you got yourself into this situation? He said, I was an engineer. I said, you're an engineer and you're now sleeping in the streets. He said, yeah. And I said, what do you think started that, created that? He said to me, well, he said, when I picked up my first drink, I was condemned to continue. In other words, it was like a sentence. I was condemned to continue. One drink was too many and a hundred's not enough and he couldn't put it down. And I agree 100% to that. If I had one today, I'd be back on a hundred tomorrow. Fictitiously, but you know, it goes that way. And I saw Richard the next week and we chatted again and the next week. And one day I went down there one Sunday morning and I couldn't see Richard, couldn't find him. So I went into administration and I said, Richard, do you know where he is? And they said, oh, Mike, we're terribly sorry. He, we found him Wednesday night. He's, he died. He died on the streets. And that man, you know, it's like a train ride. You can get on a train and you can hop off that train ride at any station. But sadly, unless you do the right thing and try and get well, you're going to hit the wall. You're going to hit that wall. And that's what he did. He never got there. And there's lots of people like that. I've lost, I know, four very good friends of mine that are today dead because they thought they could drink again. They decided that that was what they were going to do. Obviously, their faith wasn't strong enough or whatever. You can't blame God for that. You know, you've got free will and you take your own will. And they're taking it back. And what happens? They died. Mm. Uh, in, in some of them in very tragic circumstances and awful circumstances, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, so th we're not playing with marbles or spinning tops anymore. We're playing with human lives. Mm. And that's why it's so important that today we get to our youth. And it's education rather than rehabilitation. Let's educate these people before we start having to rehabilitate them. Here's the governments and these saying, oh, marijuana is a soft drug, you know, and they're going to introduce it into the hospitals and things. So what a load of rubbish, you know. If you eat food, you get fat. If you eat the wrong foods, you get fat. If you take drugs, you're not going to get well. Mm. You know, if I drink beer, am I going to be sober? No. I've got a compulsion. I've got an addiction. And I can't do that. 
I took drugs too in my youth, and I, that was unbelievable. Mm. You know, it, uh, exactly the same thing. I took up gambling uh, at an AA. When I got into AA at night, I used to take up gambling, and it became a total compulsion. I was driving around after an AA meeting at night, listening to the last race at Dapto. I didn't know what a bloody dog <laughs> colour was or anything. You know, and I was listening to dog races. Is, is that compulsion? You know? And I was losing a lot of money and, uh, you know, my life had become totally unmanageable. Mm. And then when I put down my drink for the final time, I was, uh, it's just been a beautiful ride. So, Mike, just to finish, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to people before you go and meet our Lord? What would it be? Well, firstly, you admit to yourself, you know, I mean, you know that that you've got a problem. You know you've got a problem. You're not hiding booze in your buggy and sneaking grog into your car at night driving home and you know putting it in your glove box or hiding it down under the stairs and going down to feed the chooks at night and drinking from underneath the stairs. You know you've got a problem if you start doing things like that. And we do do that. We become compulsive liars, compulsive cheats. We, we lie to our wives and to our spouses and to our working colleagues and things. So you know you've got a problem. The first thing you have to do is to admit that you're powerless over this thing and you have to do something about it. The second thing is you have to do something about it. And I would suggest if in early days, by all means, go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. You, there you will hear about this power greater than yourself. And you might think if you're not a Christian or if you're not that way inclined, you might think, oh my goodness. Yes, everyone does. Everyone does that, that aren't Christians from the start. But I can tell you now as one of those people that unless you do hand your will as this Steve said to me, hand your will and your life over to the care of God. You're not going to get better. You will not get better. There are, there are three things that are going to happen to us as alcoholics. We can get sober. Well, sorry, we, we'll, we'll die as an alcoholic. We'll get Corsakoff's disease. And I've been up to Ward 23 up at Morissette Hospital and see them with their short-term memories gone with Corsakoff's disease. They don't need grog anymore because their minds are totally gone. They're mad. You know, they're, they're simple. Or you'll die. And if you continue to drink alcohol and you're an alcoholic and you continue to take drugs and you're a drug addict, you'll die. So as I said before, we're not playing with marbles and things anymore. We're playing with human lives. So you must do something yourself. Don't expect anyone else to do it for you. Unless you do it for yourself, you're not going to get well. And then you've got to change. Listen to what's going on in the room. These people aren't there to scare you or to put pressure on you or to tell you that you're an idiot. They're there to love you, to help you and to you know, guide you on the path of sobriety. And I can honestly say the gift that I've been given, this gift of sobriety, has been the greatest gift that God has ever given anybody, for, for uh, any alcoholic, any alcoholic, because it's just changed my life and uh, I couldn't live a better life today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your story. I think um, you know, everyone can learn from that main idea, which is... You know, you you've got to humble yourself and then realize that that our Lord can really yeah. He can help you. Yeah. You've just got to open yourself up to that help. Just be more open and, and sure. honest. Yeah. But with everything, that doesn't only go for grog and alcohol. Pornography, as we said before, you know, I mean, that's that's a killer. Pornography is a killer of marriages. Mm. It's a killer of, of minds, of mental mental. It'll lead you into other areas you don't want to go, like. Uh, you know, um, pedophilia and, and all mm. these type of things. Mm. It is a dreadful, dreadful thing. Mm. And 
as I said to that man, and rightly so, you're prostituting. What about your sister and your mother? You know, think about them in this situation. Pornography. You're just prostituting these beautiful people that are yours, you know. Mm. Um, you've got to get rid of it. Mm. Get it right out of your life. Mm. I mean, we're human, we're, we're male, and we're going to look at things. A girl, a nice looking girl walks past, you go, wow, she's nice, you know. That's not pornography, that's normal. Mm. And I've spoken to priests about this, and in fact the priest t told us at a retreat one day, we're giving a, a get-together, a beautiful thing like that. You know, he, was, he went back to his priest's friend's place to have a, have a meal with him. And he said, I won't be there, but go in. I'll tell you where the key is. What, put the news on and have a beer. There's a beer in the fridge. And this priest, friend that gave the retreat, went in and put the news on, was sitting there. And it was at that time, five o'clock at night, when all those wretched, soapy, silly soapy shows are on. And he was trying to find the news. And he came across this soapy. And here they were kissing like mad and rolling around and things. And <laughs> the priest said, oh, my goodness, what's that? You know, five o'clock in the afternoon, it's children's time, you know. And he clicked and went on to, uh, looking for the news and then he went maybe I should have a look at that so that I know what that so he went back to it and he sat there and he said hang on what am I doing and he went forward again now if he can do that and he's human which it was the best thing that man said all weekend because he made him real if he can do it then goodness me <laughs> you know I can do it ten times worse so we need to be vigilant on these things. We need to be on our guard all the time for that type of thing. Mm. But that was beautiful that he said that. And I went and spoke to him afterwards and I spoke to people at the retreat about it too. You know, wasn't that sensational what he said? Putting himself in a real human position because we do suffer. We do find it hard to, you know, not look at beautiful things, you know, things mm. like that. Mm. And uh, it's simply a matter of going to our priest and asking for forgiveness and he will, uh, our Lord will give it to us and, um, you know, we can get on with life again because yeah. it's not easy that's it life's that's not it. easy but there is a there is a uh, there's there's a yeah, what's the word i'm looking for there is a, a fix a fix for that's life it. and uh, that's jesus christ yeah. i think Beautiful. awesome thanks mike